the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated briefly. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control themselves? I believe they are. My opponents do not. I believe in the right of the people to rule. I believe again that the American people are, as a whole, capable of self-control and of learning by their mistakes. Welcome to the Serve to Lead podcast. I'm your host, James Strzok. As we get started, may I ask a favor? Please help us reach a growing audience by taking just a moment and giving us a high rating on your podcast provider. This podcast is supported by listeners. Please consider joining me at Substack, where you'll also have access to frequent posts on current and historical events. It's an absolute delight to have David Petruja in the house. He's the author of a well-received and highly readable new book, Roosevelt Sweeps Nation, FDR's 1936 landslide, and the triumph of the liberal ideal. David Petruja, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. David Petruja, yours is a name that many listeners will recognize. You've been praised as a national treasure, as one of the best historians in the U.S., one of the great political historians of all times. You've been compared by critics with David McCullough, Eric Larson, H.L. Mencken, Theodore H. White, Edmund Morris, H.R. Brands, and Doris Kearns Goodwin. You've written about T.R., Calvin Coolidge, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, FDR, Hitler, Harry Truman, JFK, Nixon, the 1920s, mobster Arnold Rothstein, and many more. What piqued your attention all the way back to the 1936 presidential campaign? Well, you've got Franklin Roosevelt, you've got the Depression, you've got sort of my sweet spot in terms of what I, I study, the 20s, the 30s, the teens. And so you have, like my first book in a series of presidential election studies, 1920, you have an election where the people say, oh, big blowout, no story there, nothing to see here, move on. But how did you get there? How did you get to that point? And was it always inevitable? And and it really is, you know, if you're looking back in hindsight, well, then we know it's going to be Franklin Roosevelt, 46 out of 48 states. But if you're living through it, you don't have to merely be a delusional Republican thinking, oh, boy, we got him this time. Like, uh, you know, Wiley Coyote and Roadrunner. But um, but many, many Democrats are nervous at various points along the way, as late as September, when Roosevelt is off tooling for two weeks in the North Atlantic on a boat and letting his campaign sort of go to hell. And the bigwigs in Washington are, are getting together. They hold a meeting. Eleanor is is sitting in for Franklin. And then she comes away from that and writes a, a blistering shape up letter to everyone, uh, which, uh, you know, that the campaign is in trouble, is in disarray. In the July 12th edition of the Gallup poll, the scientific poll, not the wildly wrong um, literary digest poll, he's predicting a uh, electoral college victory for Alf Landon, the rather hapless Republican candidate. But you've also got this great supporting cast. So you've got Huey Long and Father Coughlin and Gerald L.K. Smith and William Randolph Hearst and a bunch of fellows in the in the New Deal 
who are kind of sniping at each other because these successful enterprises are not always uh, harmonious, but they succeed anyway. Well, here we are all the way out to 2022 in what seems to be a permanent campaign nation. And FDR, all of a sudden, who's unknown to so many people because the median age of voters is around, what, 40? So lots of people, particularly, and it must be said, a rather ahistorical moment, don't really have a sense of FDR. Yet all of a sudden, we've got your outstanding new book. We've got a book by Jonathan Darman, Becoming FDR, on the issue of his emergence from polio. We've got another very big book coming out in January 2023 from Derek Liebart, the historian, Unlikely Heroes, Franklin Roosevelt, his four lieutenants, and the world they made. What's going on? Why are all of you smart historians turning your attention and our attention to this man who's been dead since 1945, with all due respect? There, there is some magical law out there that says if a historian comes out with even an obscure subject matter, then somebody else is going to launch a book with the, with another house on that subject matter. This this was going to happen to me with Kennesaw Mountain Landis of all people, and uh, <laughs> it it led finally to the other book being canceled because they they said we can't compete with this book. This is so good, but I've I've seen this happen over and over again where you where you see like a couple of books on Al Smith in the same year. Uh, so so it's it's the cosmos. Part of it is the cosmos, but also you can't get away from these Roosevelts. And if the focus isn't on Franklin, then there'll be a year when the Frank focus is on Eleanor or the focus is on Theodore Roosevelt. So it's it's sort of like this this merry-go-round of Roosevelts and we focus our attention periodically on all of them, but also you see where people are talking about green new deals and Joe Biden having a, a FDR-ish agenda, et cetera, et cetera. But then again, you have situations where um, the projects really start before the conversation starts nationally. And so, uh, you know, I may have started this book before certain things in the book, which are newsworthy now, we're even going on. So it's 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 the cosmos and it's the times and it's the it's the uh, the fact you can't get away from these Roosevelts. Well, and I want to be very clear for listeners, and we have a lot of listeners who love history and are quite expert in it, that each of these three books is really focused on a different aspect or series of events or ways to think about this protean personality of Franklin Roosevelt. So please don't think that you will not be uh, making a huge mistake if you don't look at each of these books as they interest you. A little more on FDR uh, to get your guidance, David Petruja. There's also the fact that I think many, many people in the US today, and it's of all political stripes, I certainly hear this and I know I'm not alone. People feel like we've had many years, depending how you look at it, uh, 30 years of, let's say, unexceptional trying to be unprovocative, and this cuts across all political parties, but unexceptional political leadership, and people are getting concerned. Uh, you know, leadership is often like energy, or it's, you take it for granted until you don't have it, and then you know you got a serious problem because everything stops. 
Another issue I think that's turning eyes to Roosevelt right now is the recognition that the post-war order that he midwifed in 1945 is fraying, if not coming to an end. So there seems to be perhaps a lot of special relevance of Franklin Roosevelt. How do you think about those things? Well, certainly the <laughs> United Nations, which was the same name given to the Allies, really, that's what they were using during World War II, is a kind of, and to use an uncharitable phrase, a warmed over version of the League of Nations. And as the League of Nations did precious little to prevent World War II, I guess we haven't seen World War III, but I'm not quite sure what the uh, United Nations has really accomplished in terms of, of stopping what law, uh, wars or genocides we've seen in, in the last, oh, 20 years or so or, or longer. So has that been a success? Well, not exactly. I think people are looking also more at, at his uh, uh, domestic agenda and how you spend money without wrecking things, without bringing the economy to its knees. Now, Franklin Roosevelt, we talk about in this conversation, in this book, we talk about Franklin Roosevelt and the word depression has to come up, okay? And the reason for that is because it's still going on. Herbert Hoover is gone. He's been gone for four years in 19, by 1936, but the depression is still hanging on. There are tens of millions of people still on relief, still getting a government check, and the unemployment rate is still in the range in, in November of 1936, 13 to 14%. This is not what I would term a robust recovery. So Franklin Roosevelt in this year has to convince the majority of the voting public or a working majority for the electoral college that the glass is half full rather than half empty. And he really does that in spectacular fashion for a variety of reasons, part of which is the absolute haplessness of the Republican Party at that time, which has been decimated by two uh, big landslides already in 1932 and 1934, combine that with outflow of largesse and relief and the calming of fears from Washington by the New Deal. And the GOP is, is almost lucky to have a candidate like Alf Landon because they're lucky to have almost any candidate. Well, one of the fascinating things in this wonderful account of 1936 that makes it such a watershed, and I think many readers will have this reaction that I did, David Petruja. There is so much dynamism uh, compared to today, in particularly in the Democratic side, with these extraordinary people heading into that election, including Huey Long, you had Father Coughlin, you had Gerald L.K. Smith, you had Francis Townsend, all these people affecting or looming in presidential politics and al and smith al smith and and the potential of third parties today it seems by contrast our politics are very ossified and limited to these two legacy parties how do you think about that the parties are we had seen more third party activity prior to these years and we see third 
a third party with the union party, which is the old Huey Long crowd added to the Father Coglinites and the Townsend old age pension people and the agrarian radicals from the upper Midwest. That will fizzle in the face of, of Roosevelt's popularity and in the fact that Huey Long is, is dead, assassinated in 1935, and they're stuck congressman, a congress uh, candidate, a congressman from North Dakota, William Lemke. But you're also seeing fizzling out of the old Socialist Party, which had been able to, back with a million votes, was a million votes in like 1908 or so and 1920, comes close again, comes 800, 900,000 votes in 1932. But as Woodrow Wilson had sort of stolen the program of the socialists with his new freedom, Franklin Roosevelt more so does that with the New Deal. And also, as in the 1920s, you're seeing where the more radical members of, I would call the Marxist left, defect from the Socialist Party into the Communist Party. And, and attain an intellectual, I wouldn't say ascendancy, but a sort of the peak of their popularity in the 1930s, even though they don't garner, oh, more than like 0.2% of the vote, but they're not trying to, because what they really want to do is, is elect Franklin Roosevelt. And again, with, with two parties, it was only in 1924, as uh, that little far back, when there was another progressive party run with uh, Robert La Follette running. And what Roosevelt is trying to do in 1936 is not just win, but win big and to restructure, refashion the parties where it's like, well, I have to count on these conservatives in the party, whether they're from the South or the Northeast, but I'd, I'd like to bring in I'd like to bring in the progressives from the Republican Party. And, and you see him doing that. You know, would you see three Republicans on Joe Biden's cabinet as he starts out? But you have Treasury and Interior um, and, and, a, and Henry Wallace at Agriculture, all former progressive Republicans joining that cabinet that year. So you you see things starting. It's really the beginning of the realignment of that mishmash, mishmash party system. Devin Petruja, I'd like to ask you a little more on this fascinating question of how Franklin Roosevelt was, in effect, using history to remake partisan and political identities in this 1936 contest. Could you elaborate a little bit on that? The parties had been split geographically, largely geographically, actually and ideologically for a very long time. And the most dramatic example of that was Theodore Roosevelt and how he was running third party in 1912. And then you get a, uh, that 1924 rebirth of the Progressive Party. And that is, uh, that is actually a bipartisan situation where you have a Republican Wafala running for president and a Democrat Burton K. Wheeler, a senator from Montana, running for vice president on that ticket. Now, by the time you get to 1936, a lot of the Republican progressives have already jumped ship. And it's really interesting to see the, the data of who of party registration in the years of, of the New Deal. 
where when Roosevelt wins in a landslide in 1932, like about 56 percent uh, or so of the of the of the voters are still registered Republican. OK. And then it goes down to like about 52 percent in 34. And it's only until um, 1936 that the Republicans uh, fall into the minority where they're going to be for a very long period of time. Now, uh, you also see, aside from that great mega shift, you see shifts in certain voting blocks as well. The immigrant population uh, had been coming in, and even though immigration stops because of World War I and never gets back to where it was before World War I, the people who came in either became citizens or their children became citizens by 1932 or 1936. And some social scientists had been predicting it back then. They were simply doing the math and saying, okay, things are going to change big time. And that's there's a very interesting stat in the book which says from 1920 on, from 19 to 1936, basically the Republican vote is flat. It, except for 1928 when Al Smith gets blown out by Herbert Hoover. But it's in the range of eight to nine million. And the Democratic vote is, is trending up from like seven to 16 million or so. I may not have these numbers exactly right, but off the top of my head. But that's the basic trend. And so they've been growing in the cities where the Republicans or the Democrats in 1936 are going to carry like 102 out of 104 biggest cities where the uh, Catholic vote has now solidly Democratic, 75 percent, the Jewish vote, 90 percent Democratic for uh, FDR. But more, most significantly and most dramatically, the black vote, which had been historically um, Republican for as long as it had existed since Reconstruction, is now 71 percent uh, Democratic. And that's because by 1936, 40 uh, percent of blacks are either on um, the government program or payroll one way or the other, either through relief or unemployment or on, on the government uh, work relief programs. So that changes. And both parties are, are battling to secure that vote. The Republicans know they have a problem. Boy, have they got problems on every front. They put a lot of money into it. It's to no effect. The Democrats know that even aside from the efficacy of, of these New Deal programs and the generosity of these programs, that black people distrust them. And they distrust Franklin Roosevelt because he was largely dominated by Southerners or in great part in 1932. And his uh, administration was very beholden to them in the Congress. But the uh, they do all the way to his vice president, right? All uh, with, the way uh, to John Nance Garner. Exactly, exactly. And that's so it's it's all very visible. And where does Franklin Roosevelt or where did he spend a hell of a lot of his time? Warm Springs, Georgia. So even uh, when you get a, a Huey Long backing him and then breaking away, uh, black people are, are extremely suspicious uh, of that. Interestingly enough, the older black voters stick Republican, probably by a slim majority, but they do. But the younger ones uh, jump ship in droves. 
Another issue is Roosevelt's view of national identity, his use of terms like Americanism and his trying to infuse that with new meaning. Could you talk a little bit about your thoughts on that? He's not out to divide the groups. In 1936, he is running a pretty much of a class warfare kind of campaign, running against the rich and the business interests and the people who are opposing him on the business side of the equation, starting with the December 1935 State of the, of the Union address and extending to his acceptance speech, where we remember mostly the phrase, uh, rendezvous with destiny, but the phrase he really liked in that was economic royalist. He wanted to to paint the uh, uh, business opponents to the New Deal, the rich, the top-hatted, silk-hatted guys, as as sort of like the Tories in the American Revolution uh, against the the common folks and the American ideal, and that continues right up to his last big speech of the camp convention at Madison Square Garden where he's talking about these people who he says hate him. And he says, I welcome their hatred. And in my second administration, I hope they will have met their master, which was not the way presidents had normally spoken and which had care, uh, 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 actually scared some of the people in his administration, like uh, Secretary of Labor Francis Perkins. Uh, but in getting toward Americanism, I mean, he does wish to be the president of of all sorts of of people, all sorts of regions, and to break away a lot of the barriers which had divided the parties before that. Could you talk a little bit about what happened after the 1936 campaign, the sort of hubris or nemesis that followed with the court packing and how you see that connection? Well, it's um, Franklin peaks, I think, in his political skills in 1936, probably followed closely by either 1932 or the lead up to war uh, in 1940-41. In right after that, his political skills seem to escape him. And the economy goes downhill again. There's a wave of strikes after the uh, Wagner National Labor Relations Act. And you see the economy goes downhill. I think a part of that is he's raised taxes. He's raised taxes on the rich and he's raised taxes on the workers through Social Security uh, with the 1% payroll tax, which, uh, which are of the workers and another 1% from, from, um, from the bosses, so to speak, in the midst of a depression. He is uh, still smarting even uh, from the Supreme Court's knocking down his two big programs, the National um, Recovery Act and the Agricultural Adjustment Act. National Recovery Act is, some people have called it fascist, uh, but it is a great micromanaging and cartelization of American industry and business, both large and small, all the way down to how much you're gonna charge for, for getting your pants pressed. And someone is in Jersey City is prosecuted for that. Uh, that's knocked out. And the Agricultural Adjustment Act is an interesting program because in the midst of scarcity in the Depression, uh, that's designed to create more scarcity, to build up farm prices. And they're both knocked out. But Franklin is 
even though he knows these weren't the greatest programs and maybe it's a good thing that they were knocked out, he's still smarting from this. And I think his head does swell from that uh, 46 to two blowout uh, uh, in terms of the states he carries in against Landon. So he tries to pack the Supreme Court and the American public is not in favor of that. They want to keep it at nine, even though that's not in the Constitution, but it is in in our American political and governmental tradition. And he does something else, goes after his opponents in the Congress. And he goes after, he specifically targets about sitting legislators. And most of them are senators. One is a congressman who's chair of, I think, Ways and Means, John O'Connor, who is the brother of uh, his old law partner, Basil O'Connor. He bags O'Connor. He gets his scalp. But in terms of the senators, um, he gets none of them. And, you know, once your political mojo is shown not to be quite invincible, then people can draw back from you. And by 1938, you know, the New Deal, Congress starts drawing back from it and you're seeing a slow dismantling of it and you're not really seeing a progression of any new programs to speak of that are not war related. So getting back to Social Security, Roosevelt puts in very smartly a contributory plan so that no one can ever take this away from from the people who have contributed. So the program will will essentially never end because the contributors have a moral and legal uh, right and political right to their uh, some sort of payment from it. But how is it structured? Well, they pass it in August 1935, and you think they could start collecting taxes in, oh, September 1935. But they don't. They don't collect it until after the 1936 election, January 1937. And they're not going to start collecting or they're not going to be handing out the payments until 1942. 1942. So that they've actually got some money in the till. But after the Democrats do so badly in 1938, I'm sure it was a big coincidence. Magically, the payments start arriving in January 1940 just in time for another election. And of course, a lot of key workers were left out of the first uh, iteration of Social uh, Security. Particularly Blacks. Yes. Blacks are only 10% covered. Part of it is you've got 25% 25 Black unemployment at that point. Then you've got 40% of the Blacks uh, maybe on relief or uh, working for the government. And then you've got two other categories where blacks would be very significant in the workforce and which are not covered. One is agriculture. A lot of them are still down south on the farm. And the second is domestic workers. It's not specifically domestic workers who are excluded, but it is entities with less than eight employees. So you've got to have a pretty big mansion to have more than eight servants. And, and so a lot of, of, of the people who are taking care of, of, of the households, maybe a, a chauffeur or a maid or a valet, are, are not covered at all. And that's, that's going to continue for a while. Two of the great students of Roosevelt's 1936 campaign and of Roosevelt generally were, of course, Lyndon Johnson, who's 64 
blowout in some ways could be seen as an echo or a continuation. And Ronald Reagan, who was a young person, saw Franklin Roosevelt that year in a parade. Talk a little, please, about the influence of this campaign and Roosevelt on Johnson, Reagan, and other subsequent presidents. Johnson, like Huey Long, is one of those guys who probably started running for president when he was six, you know? And so he's he's ambitious from the start, becomes, I believe, an aide to a congressman in 1930. And early on in the New Deal, he's a regional administrator in Texas for a New Deal program. And, and he's really young at that point. But then he moves up into Congress and he would have these daddies. He'd have a daddy who would be his mentor, who he would hook on to. And FDR was one of the first. And when FDR couldn't necessarily count on every Southern or Texas congressman to slavishly, shall we say, support the New Deal, uh, Lyndon Johnson would be there. Then he also hooks on to Sam Rayburn. And then he veers kind of right. There's a sort of rightward period where he tacks rightward and his his uh, mentor is Senator Richard Russell, the conservative Democrat of uh, of um, Georgia. But even though he has to kind of trim his liberal sails, he I don't think he ever really gives up on the idea of cementing and expanding the New Deal. And but putting that Texas LBJ brand on it. And that's that's what happens in. 1964 with his big blowout of Barry Goldwater and then the programs which follow. And you see the same thing in 1966, where he has this massive historic landslide uh, and it is followed by a big Republican gains. And this doesn't just happen to the Democrats in 1936 and 1964. It happened to the Harding, Coolidge Republicans in the midterms of 1922. So that's that's a pretty normal thing. What was abnormal and which showed the strength of Roosevelt and his New Deal programs in terms of popularity was that for the first time in like 100 years in 1934, the Democrats had gained seats. And it was tough to gain seats from the high plateau they had in 32. Now, Ronald Reagan, Ronald Reagan, of course, is a totally different story, but he's a new dealer uh, as as a kid and as a young man. He says he joins a lot of, of liberal organizations when he is out in, in Hollywood. But what kind of disturbs him immediately is uh, because he is a union official, because he's head of the union out there with the actors, uh, he's busy fighting the communists who have been busy infiltrating the craft unions and the uh, uh, screenwriters guild and such in Hollywood. And it's they play pretty rough. At some point, he's he's carrying a, a, a handgun around a, a pistol for his his self-protection. And whether it's it's probably not so much GE, which influences him and his work for them and going around to all the factories and giving talks. It's probably more Nancy. I don't think there was anything ever more influential on Reagan than, than Nancy Reagan. Um, but of course, by the time he reaches the presidency, he's taking down Harry Truman's picture uh, and putting up Calvin Coolidge's, but he never disses Franklin Roosevelt. 
And I think in, in part because while Franklin Roosevelt was building up, building up, building up government, Franklin Roosevelt was also careful not to tear down the work ethic of the American people. Franklin Roosevelt hated the idea of the dole, and he hated the Townsend plan idea for old age pensions because it was totally non-contributory. It was just a, it was really like a welfare for older people. Social security was contributory and the people put money into it, whether it was, you know, sound actuarially or not. And he admitted this at one point to a critic a few years later, but politically, it was a genius uh, thing. And so he didn't want people just sort of sitting around and not working. He wanted a he wanted he wanted all those programs out there or projects out in front of the public eye to point to with pride that like, hey, look at this. This is the Triborough Bridge. This is a big dam out west. This is this is an irrigation project. These are like 10 million new post offices you've got. Uh, so these are these are almost like campaign ads, but he also wants um, uh, people not to suffer morally from um, being on their keister and just collecting a check. Well, let's do a quick lightning round of questions and focus oh no, on, and focus on you a little bit. Uh, it strikes me in reading your fine work that you combine a vivid sort of you are their sense that journalism aims for with the exactitude and perspective of a historian. How do you do that? How do you cultivate that? Or is that not the way you would see yourself? No, I, I, I think that's true. And in terms of, of the first part, the journalism, a lot of my sources are newspaper or magazine sources or even the memoirs of journalists. And one of the things I remember from my early days as an early Met fan was one of the one of the announcers coming in. There's a Bob Murphy coming in to paint the word picture for you. So paint the word picture for the readers. Don't make up details. If you don't know the color of the man's suit, don't make it up. But if you can say that the person was redheaded or bald or or a little portly or whatever, if you can put some descriptive description or life into it so that the people can see what's going on, then do so because it's his story. It's a story. And you, you want to create something almost akin to like creating a not only a journalism, but as you would have the text, uh, the voiceover in a documentary, okay? Uh, so that that would be part of it, but also the uh, intellectual uh, or or the documentary rigor. Um, I I don't want to be <laughs> caught short on on making stuff up. And one of the first things I do in creating one of these books is to create a massive timeline. And the timelines might go a hundred hundred thousand words. And so I I kind of know where the story is going. And also I create file folder after file folder after file folder to document stuff as I'm going after it. So if I have an 18 month contract to deliver a book, the first six months are pure research. And then I say to myself, gee, you haven't written a damn word yet. You better get going. And at, at that point, the words start to flow. But 
I'm I'm not afraid to go back and try to verify even more. There's so much history happening right now, and perhaps there always is, but this seems like a crowded hour. Are there significant matters relating to government or history or politics or, for that matter, life and work about which you changed your mind over time? That I've changed my mind? Oh, sure. <laughs> I, I don't want to go into that, though, because I like to, as when I play the historian role, I don't like to interject my politics into it, even, even talking about what my politics are, because I've got people, I'm, I'm startled by if I get an email from someone online or just see a remark on, on uh, Twitter to see um, the wide variety of people from left and right who really dig these books I do. And I think they do that because, because I play it down the middle and I kind of want them to see me as, you know, a fair, an honest broker, or I'm calling it as, as I see it. So, um, you know, while I do have opinions and why I have changed them, I've changed them, for example, I think several times on the tariff over the course of years. <laughs> I won't say where I am now because I might change it again in five minutes. There's a complex question. Uh, but uh, so I think I've I think I've succeeded in ducking that question. Well, your work certainly does succeed in being far beyond any narrow partisanship or personalities of the present that can be so distracting today. Are there any topics we've not discussed that you'd like to leave us with? The way I, I think the way that did I mention the the scarcity of of FDR's um, fireside chats? You did not. That'd be a great place. Yeah, to yeah. Wrap we up. Uh, he he makes a, a statement to uh, someone around the time of this campaign, and he says the the individual psyche and the or the collective psyche cannot for a long stand to see the same name on the front page of the newspaper day in and day out. Neither can they stand to hear the same voice on the radio every night. And you think of Franklin Roosevelt being on these fireside chats and being ubiquitous and being in the newsreels and having a framed picture of him over every dining room table, et cetera, et cetera. And, but he knows when to draw back you know, based on that statement, but also overall, he only has, depending on how you're counting at the most, 31 fireside chats in the course of his whole 12-year presidency. That's not a lot. And from April 1935 to, uh, to September 1936, he only has, that's 17 months, there are no fireside chats. So he's... He's holding back. He's not overextending his welcome. He knows sometimes you have to leave them wanting more. Whereas I think a lot of politicians today um, from either left or right or middle uh, just can't shut up and can't bear not to have an opinion on everything or to be in the spotlight, be on that front page or on the radio every single day. But but. Uh, in those days when politicians drew back, particularly sitting presidents would often uh, draw back from um, 
from going on the campaign trail. In 1904, Theodore Roosevelt does not campaign. If you can imagine Theodore Roosevelt holding back everything Theodore Roosevelt within him for all those months, he must have been sitting there in, in the White House just twitching the whole time, wanting to punch somebody. But even he held back. So the times were were different in 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 many a way, but in other ways they could be, of course, just just as nasty as now. And and I I uh, chronicle some real whack jobs <laughs> peddling some real hate back then too. Well, and of course you mentioned T.R. in 1904, even more than 1936, he had to live with the fact they really didn't have very reliable polling at all. So he had no. to go on his own instinct and what he was hearing from his network. So he truly didn't know. He didn't know. It. He it was, was scared. Over. He was scared at the end that he thought he might. Uh, I think he was asking his daughter, well, what, what do we do if we have to move out or something? Yes. <laughs> like, yes. Well, not not for a while. But he does make the mistake, which, um, well, for example, Joe Biden has not made with all the questions of Biden's age. T.R. makes the Buchanan mistake, and I think some of the others did as well, uh, that I'm not going to run again. I'm elected, and I'm making myself a lame duck election night, and uh, that's that's certainly a, a problem, which FDR did not make, and interestingly enough, well, there, there are a number of big changes. that the, the Democratic Convention is, again, sort of as dull as the Republican because it's it's like it's almost like the Politburo meeting because everyone is everyone is on the same page just about fifty percent of the people are actually on the federal payroll okay and um, you have first off you have the first black delegates this is significant you have twelve black delegates twenty two alternates so they're they're sending a message the times are changing. And more to the point, you get the two-thirds rule thrown out, where you didn't need two-thirds of the delegates to nominate the president and vice president anymore. This causes a ripple of talk in the convention and in the press that maybe this is being done so Franklin Roosevelt can run again in 1940. The, the rumors are out there and the, and the talk is in the press as early as that, it it well precedes any any thought of war in 1939 or 40. Well, David Petruja, it's been a delight to have you with us, and congratulations on your thought-provoking and highly readable new book, Roosevelt Sweeps Nation, FDR's 1936 Landslide and the Triumph of the Liberal Ideal. Thank you. And thanks to you, our listeners, for being with us. Please send me ideas for future guests and topics and follow us on Twitter at James Strock and connect via our website, Serve to Lead, or subscribe at Substack. Until next time, take care, be strong, and serve to lead. These are not dark days. These are great days, the greatest our country has ever lived. And we must all thank God that we have been allowed, each of us, according to our station to play a part in making these days memorable in the history of our race.